Well, once again, we turn to God's Word and the hearing of the sermon this morning. And today we come to another great story, another story like we mentioned last week that would make the children's Bible storybook, right? This one makes every version of a children's Bible uh, a storybook and picture book. Uh, Daniel in the lion's den, a lot like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, right? Where we have the the men being thrown into the the, uh, fiery furnace. So here, Daniel going into the lion's den is a story that you know full well. You remember this one from when uh, you were a little kid. But again, for us, it is a story that helps us on this side of Holy Week, on this side of the resurrection, to reflect upon, from an Old Testament perspective, to reflect upon the victory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Like all the other texts, we're not approaching this as mere models, though we will use Daniel as a model today, and we can use all these characters as models. David is a model, of course, and so are Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Uh, We'll look at the faith or an anti-model like Jonah. We can learn much from these men, to be sure. We just want to make sure that as we reflect upon them and look at their models or the anti-model that they are, that we are also seeing and primarily seeing the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, that we are understanding the importance of the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, the effectiveness of the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, that we're receiving a lens by which we may understand and interpret what he is doing. And then, in light of that, to come back and consider the model that we ought to maintain in light of what Jesus has accomplished. And that'll be the task again this morning as we come to the story of Daniel in the lion's den. Now, the text has already been read, so I won't go ahead and read it, but you know the story, and we'll kind of rehash it as we go along throughout it. Now, let's start first by thinking, I want us to think today of the context of the story or the context of Daniel's experience, the meaning of Daniel's experience, and then the results of Daniel's experience. So those are going to be the three framing uh, points that we'll make, the context of Daniel's experience, the meaning of the experience, and then finally, the results of the experience. So let's think together for a second about the context of the experience. Who is Daniel and what's going on and why is he there with this guy named Darius, who, by the way, is probably also Cyrus. Uh, Cyrus was probably his Persian name. Darius was probably his Median name. But let's let's set the context. Daniel is from Judah and he's a Jewish man. And like all of those within Judah, the southern kingdom of Israel, remember the kingdoms had split around 933 BC. Remember, we're counting backwards now as we go through the BCs. And Israel had been, by the judgment of God, defeated. They had been split in 933. The northern kingdom was defeated by the Assyrians somewhere around 722. And the southern kingdom, which held out longer because they had moments and periods of repentance, were finally defeated because of their idolatry by the kingdom of Nebuchadnezzar and that of the Babylonians. So because of their idolatry, just like the northern kingdom, they were eventually taken off and dragged out into exile. Brought under the judgment of God, they were exiled from the promised land, the land that was given to them. And again, we talked about the other week how this is like a almost a retelling, but zooming in, sort of a magnified version of what happened in the Garden of Eden. That because Adam and Eve were rebellious, they chose the idolatry of listening to Satan and pursuing their own will and not obeying God, that they were exiled from the garden. And so here, 
Israel and Judah, for their lack of obedience, are exiled from the promised land and sent out among the nations and enslaved in exile. And so for their corporate idolatry, they are sent out into that exile. Now, Daniel arrives as one of these men that's brought into exile. And very quickly, they recognize, the leaders recognize in him that this is a man who is able, right? As he grows up in exile, they recognize in this Jewish lad that he is a young man who is an able leader and who will really contribute to the good of Babylon and then beyond Babylon to that of the Persians. The development of these kingdoms throughout was that Assyria conquered Israel, then Babylon conquered Assyria, then Babylon conquered Judah, the southern kingdom of the Jews, and then eventually the Persians conquered the Babylonians. And Cyrus, who is the king of the Persians and the Medes, and so most likely they're giving him the Medish name or Median name of Darius in this text. So it kind of goes both ways. That Cyrus was the man who overcame the Babylonians and then sort of swallowed up in his Median Persian empire all of the people of Israel, the ones that were conquered by the northern kingdom of Assyria and the ones that were conquered by Babylon. Now all were taken up under the reign of of Cyrus. And so here's this young man who has grown up under the uh, uh, the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Daniel, and who has been recognized as a man with leadership capabilities, who now under King Cyrus has been elevated to a position of real authority. Clearly, Daniel is a great man and a great leader as King Darius here gathers his governors and sets 120 or so of them around his empire. He sets up three men to hold those 120 accountable. So, and Daniel's one of those guys. So Daniel is one of the top three leaders within the Median Persian Empire. And then we're even told that of those three, Daniel is most likely going to be elevated to the top dog, the one that will report right to the king and that holds basically the whole kingdom and the whole empire accountable. So Daniel is quite a man, but that's what he's doing in the land, and that's what his role is there. Now, as we think about Daniel here in this land, it's very important for us, again, in this context of Daniel's experience, to reflect for a second and to contemplate upon Daniel, not merely as a moral example, but also as a point of consideration for what life looks like in exile. Remember, last week we reflected on this that Daniel's time in Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego's time in Babylon, the whole people of Israel and Judah and their time in Babylon and in this foreign empire is analogous to where we are as sinners in Adam because of the curse. That we are exiled, if you will, out of the heavenly promised land, right? We don't have that immediate access to God. And here we are in a foreign land. And we know that the day is coming where we will be restored and brought back home. And so when we look at Israel in exile, it's very, it's a good time and opportunity for us to reflect upon what life in exile is like. And, and I would ask you, do you think of yourself as living in exile? Do you think of yourself as living in a place that's not really your home? I think the Bible gives us as a metaphor. I mean, Peter tells us in 1 Peter 2, as aliens and sojourners, dot, dot, dot. 
He goes on to tell us to abstain from fleshly lust, which wage war against the soul, because you are aliens, because you are sojourners, because you are exiles. So Daniel's position here as an exile has a lot to say to us as exiles in Babylon. And it doesn't matter where you're listening to this. It doesn't matter what state you're in. It doesn't matter what country you're in. In some sense, this cursed age in which we live is our Babylon. So by looking at Daniel, we might ask the question that Francis Schaeffer asked, how then shall we live or how shall we then live? By looking at Daniel, what does it mean? What should we expect when we live in Babylon? Well, what did Daniel do? Right? Daniel is stripped from his homeland. He's stripped from the temple. Everything he knew, his intimacy with God even, that was centered in the temple there in Jerusalem, has been destroyed. And what does Daniel do in his exile? Well, we know what he doesn't do. He doesn't sit in a corner. He doesn't pout. He doesn't protest. What does Daniel do? He acts as a faithful servant within the secular society. Daniel is enlisted. Think about this. Daniel isn't, not only is he living in exile, but Daniel is enlisted in the service of the Babylonian and Persian leaders who have brought him into slavery, who have brought them into this exile. And not only does Daniel serve and not pout or protest, Daniel serves with excellence, so much so that he is actually promoted. I think it's an important reminder to us in our exilic life, if you will, in this time of a cursed age where we are separated from our heavenly home, that our secular work, our vocation, the things that God has called us to do, all of which don't seem like ministry with a capital M, but whatever work the Lord has called you to do here in Babylon, if you will, that that work is valuable. It is noble. It's important. Go read, I encourage you to go read Jeremiah 29, 4 through 7, when Jeremiah gives a word to the exiles about what they should do. How should they pursue life while they're in exile? And what does he encourage them to do? Build houses, get married, plant gardens, raise families. That is what he's saying to them. And what Daniel has now taken up is the call to hunker down. You're going to be here a while. And as long as you're here, you are to be fruitful that you're to be workers, that you are to be a blessing. He tells them to pray for the peace of their city and to seek its good. Remember, this is Babylon he's talking about. And so I think this is an important reminder for us in our exilic life, that your secular vocation matters and you should do all to the glory of God. Don't be men pleasers. Don't do it merely as unto the Babylonian men whom you serve, if in fact you do but do it as unto the Lord with all your might. We learn that with Daniel. Now, while I say that on the one hand, and again, we're just thinking here for a moment about the context of Daniel's experience, but an important reflection for us in our exilic life. On the one hand, Daniel serves nobly his Babylonian lords and leaders. He submits to them and honors them with hard work and with excellence. However, at the same time, Daniel had built-in boundaries and safeguards so that he could live within Babylon, but in a way that would honor and glorify God. And I think it's this side that we also need to hear and reflect on this morning. Ours is probably not, the, the problem you and I have is not a problem with being comfortable in Babylon. 
Daniel might have had to have been told by Jeremiah, hey, hunker down, build homes. You're going to have to make this your temporary home for a while. Go ahead and serve there. But that's probably not the thing you and I are in danger of failing to do. In fact, you and I are probably way too comfortable in Babylon. That's our problem. And so we need to see, on the other hand, what Daniel did to set in place safeguards to guard himself from becoming Babylonian. It's one thing living in Babylon. It's another thing when we become Babylonians. And Daniel was dead set on not letting that happen. For Daniel, Babylon might be his temporary home, and they would have the service of his hands, but they would not have his heart. His heart belonged to the Lord. So what were his safeguards? Now, again, we're still thinking about the context. We haven't gotten to the lion's den yet, but important, I want us to take a minute to reflect upon this. What were the safeguards that Daniel had in place to protect himself from becoming a Babylonian while he's living in Babylon? Well, one example of this we see in Daniel chapter 1. If we go back to the beginning, I'm not going to read it, but I encourage you to go back and take a look at it. As Daniel is now being enlisted into the king's court, and he starts his run now as a servant to the, to the king under Nebuchadnezzar's reign while it's still the Babylonians, before Cyrus comes in and defeats them and takes over for the Persians, Daniel does a very interesting thing. Right? He's presented before the king's servants, and now he's going to be trained to be a servant within the king. And one of the privileges he has is he gets to eat the king's food. Right? The king is going to have his cooks prepare good and rich food. His men, the king's men, are going to be trained hard, but they're going to be well-fed and well-strengthened so that they can do their work. But if you remember in this story, Daniel says, no, I won't eat it. Now, when he tells the man who's training them he won't eat their food, the man gets very nervous because he can't have one of the guys training under him being weak and famished because his neck is going to be on the line with Nebuchadnezzar. Why didn't you do what I told you? But Daniel says, I'm not eating the king's food. I, I'm, I'm only going to eat vegetables. Now, what was this about? Why was, why was Daniel doing this? Some people think, well, because he had to stay kosher and the food wasn't kosher and so forth. There's nothing kosher about only eating vegetables. Things would still need to be kosher there. The point was something else is going on here with Daniel, but it gives us a window into the heart of the man. And I think a very important check for us as a safeguard for us living in Babylon. That is to say that Daniel, when he is offered the food, I think comes to a conclusion in his mind that eating at the king's table, eating the king's food is not evil in and of itself, but it is dangerous. I think Daniel fears that eating at the king's table is going to be a tug to his soul. It's going to get him addicted to the benefits of Babylon and slowly draw his heart away from his loyalty to God. And therefore, he draws certain lines using his wisdom, improvising, if you will, by the spirit while in Babylon. He lays down these safeguards and says here, but I'm not going to go there in wisdom's sake so that I don't become addicted to the fruits and the gifts and the, the bounty of Babylon. And so he will not eat the food. He fears, if you will, the comforts of Babylon. He doesn't want to get too comfortable here. He wants to be longing for the days when he can go home, when he can be in Jerusalem. So there's that safeguard. But then there's a second safeguard, and this brings us to our text this morning, the story of Daniel in the lion's den, and that is that Daniel maintained his spiritual disciplines. And the one that is so prominent for us this morning in the text is the spiritual discipline of prayer. 
Daniel is intentional in his prayer life. Daniel continues to go three times a day, fling the windows open, face Jerusalem, and pray, longing for the day when the Lord brings him and the captive exiles home. Daniel is intentional. He's disciplined. It's three times a day. He builds the habits, and he's uncompromising. And that's what we come to in our text this morning. Daniel, of course, is being promoted, and the men are going to conspire against him. But the minute Daniel hears that the law was passed that he may not pray, he had, he beelined it right for the second floor, threw the windows open, got on his knees in public, facing Jerusalem, and began to pray. Daniel was uncompromising in his prayer. He was public in his prayer. And he was unwilling to justify disobedience. And think about how easy it would have been to do this. I heard John Piper speak on this once. And John Piper says, think about how easy it would be for Daniel to justify this. Well, if I obey the law, then I'll be promoted. And think about how much good I can do for the empire there. Or it's only 30 days. Look, I'll pray in my heart. I'll pray in my back room. I don't have to go through all the procedures I did. Think about how many ways there would have been for Daniel to justify his giving in on this. But Daniel would not give in. The minute he hears it, up he goes. <laughs> Windows open. On his knees, he begins to pray. Now, again, we're thinking about the context of Daniel's experience. He's going to go into the lion's den. And here again, we come to the reality of life in exile. Not only do we have the temptations to settle in here and the, the need to have safeguards, but we also have the real expectations of what we can expect living in exile from our neighbors very often. These guys do not want Daniel to succeed. They do not like the fact that the king is favoring him and therefore they plot against him. And did not Jesus tell us to expect this in our exile? They hated me. They will hate you too. They persecute me. They will persecute you also. Here, Daniel experiences this himself. He's conspired against by these men. The men look for some dirt on him. They don't like the fact that he's going to become the man above the men. And so they look for the dirt. Where can they find any? And lo and behold, they can't find any dirt on Daniel. <laughs> there's no dirt on him. There's nothing that he's done wrong. And there's nothing that he's failed to do right. There's no acts of negligence and there's no grave offenses. They can't find any dirt on him. And so therefore they know the only way to get him is by leaning on and leveraging his obedience to his God. They know there's one thing Daniel will not compromise on and that is his obedience to his God. So they go and they hoodwink the king with this business of the law of the Medes and the Persians. I don't know if you caught that when it was being read. But you might recognize that language from the book of Esther, too. There was a principle, a law, a tradition within the law of the Medes and the Persians that once a law was declared as such done according to the Medes and the Persians, it could not be broken even by the king himself. It was established and, not could, and could not be undone. You remember this with Mordecai when Haman goes to Ahasuerus, Xerxes, king of the Persians, the emperor and gets him to call for a day in which they're going to just kill. It's free. Everybody can kill Jews. Any of your neighbors, you could go kill them throughout the whole land. And Ahasuerus signs the thing. It becomes law. It's done according to the Medes and the Persians. But then Xerxes finds out that he was hoodwinked. But there's nothing he can do about it. It's a law of the Medes and the Persians, and it can't be undone. And so also here, 
the law is made. They hoodwink the king. They go to him without the king realizing that it's going to ensnare his most trusted guy, Daniel. The king, King Darius, signs and says, okay, sounds good. He can't pray to anyone for 30 days. Go ahead. They can only pray to me. Without thinking, now Daniel himself is going to be in trouble because he's an uncompromising man of great obedience. And who's Daniel going to get to deliver him? Turns out that the king, even though he loves Daniel, is unable to deliver Daniel because there's nothing he can do about it. It's a law of the Medes and the Persians. Well, if Daniel's going to be delivered, he's going to need a better deliverer. He's going to need his God to deliver him. And God bless Darius because he comes to Daniel when he finds out that Daniel's been caught in this trap. He works and labors to get Daniel delivered. Nothing he can do about it. It's a law of the meeting of the Persians. And so he comes to Daniel and says, Daniel, I know your God will deliver you. I am impotent to deliver you, but your God is able to deliver. Hence, I titled this sermon, The God Who Delivers. Indeed, the God of Daniel will and did deliver him. So we know the story. Daniel is thrown into the lion's den. And after the night there, uh, the king, King Darius, runs to the to the, uh, the stone. It gets rolled away and he cries out, Daniel, are you in there? Did your God deliver you? And Daniel is brought forth alive. And Cyrus or Darius sings the praises and then calls on everyone to honor this God and then throws the, the men who, who got Daniel into this jam in there. Not only them, but their families are thrown in there. And just to show you that these lions were not docile lions and it was just all just a big coincidence, the minute they are thrown in, they are devoured by the lions. Well, that's the context of the story. Life in exile, a life in which we are called to settle in temporarily, to be obedient, yet to establish safeguards by which we maintain our obedience to God and to him alone, and one in which we recognize that there will, in fact, be persecution and hostility to those who seek to honor the Lord. Now, point two, let's think about the meaning of the story. So we have the context, but what is the meaning of this story? What is going on here? This isn't just an amazing, miraculous act, an act of random deliverance. Something else is going on here. So I want to think about the meaning of the story from two perspectives. First, in the Old Testament perspective, what's going on in the time of Daniel? Well, this is an enacted prophecy. That is, this is a prophet living out now the message and the word of God. Almost all the prophets would do this at some point. The life of the prophet was a hard life. When God called you to be a prophet, it was not an envious position. Oftentimes, the prophets had to enact and live out what God was calling the people of Israel to do or the judgments that God was declaring upon them. Think of Hosea, for example, who has to marry a prostitute and then divorce her and then buy her out of slavery. Also, I mean, that's a tough calling to marry Gomer, who's a prostitute. She cheats on you. You divorce her. You go buy her back out of slavery. But all of this was for Hosea to enact, to display in real time for people to see when they would all ask, Hosea, what are you doing marrying Gomer? Hosea would say, this is the word of the Lord to you. God has done this. He has married you, O Israel. You are his bride, yet you are like a prostitute who give yourself to other gods and so forth. Ezekiel had to do this time and time again. Well, so now Daniel, 
is essentially going to enact and live out, though he may not know it. But nonetheless, the Lord is enacting in Daniel now the very thing he is going to do for Israel and for Judah. That is, he is going to deliver them. He's going to deliver them after he first allows them to be thrown to the lions. If you look in the scriptures, we just read Daniel chapter 6. The story of Daniel and the lion's den is Daniel chapter 6. But in the next chapter, in Daniel 7, now that Daniel is elevated, Cyrus, Darius, gets a vision. And in the vision, he sees these four beasts. And Daniel comes to interpret the vision for him. And he says, O king, the four beasts you saw are four successive kingdoms. Now, the first beast he sees, which represents the kingdom of Babylon, is that of a lion. Daniel interprets the kingdom of Babylon as the lion. And Daniel, like Judah, has been thrown into the lion's den. Now, in this case, Daniel was not thrown because of his disobedience. He is thrown because of his obedience. But nonetheless, like Israel, thrown into the den of the lions and then ultimately restored and delivered finally and ultimately unharmed. And God is declaring to Israel through this action that takes place in Daniel in this prophetic way that this is what I'm going to do. I am about to deliver you from the lions. And do you know what means he uses to deliver them from the lions? This emperor of all people, Cyrus, when you go and read the prophet Isaiah, Cyrus is called the servant of the Lord, the anointed one of God, who is going to be the deliverer of my people. And now Cyrus is on the throne. And here Daniel's thrown into the lion's den and he is delivered out unharmed. And it's only going to be a short time now before Cyrus sends the people of Israel back to their home to rebuild their city and to rebuild their walls. So on one hand, on the simplest level, Daniel's being tossed into the lion's den is this prophetic act, prophetic act and message from the Lord. But of course, on a bigger and grander scale, the story of Daniel in the lion's den is a shadowy picture of the greater deliverance and of the greater Daniel. The judgment of Daniel that, and the being thrown into the lion's den is a picture of that one who would later come, the greater Daniel, who, though no wrong was found in him, though they searched with all their might, Pontius Pilate asked and asked and asked again and had him tried and sent him to Herod and sent him to Caiaphas, but at the end of the day said no wrong could be found in him and actually washed his hands of it. This one, this greater Daniel, who was accused by the conspiracy of those around him and who was ultimately condemned because of his faithfulness and who was ultimately and finally thrown into the lion's den, the ultimate lion's den, and who was thrown in there as a righteous one on behalf of the worthless idolaters, the one who had the stone rolled over the den's door, if you will, being sealed inside and who left Holy Saturday an anxiety-filled day. Remember in Daniel, when Daniel is thrown into the lion's den and, and King Cyrus is saying to himself, oh my goodness, I know your God will deliver you, but all night he's anxious. Remember, he can't sleep. He, he, he can't, he's up all night. He's restless, wondering whether or not Daniel is going to survive and whether his God is going to deliver him. Think about the anxiety that was there on Holy Saturday as the disciples or just head spinning, unable to sleep, wondering what had just happened and how is everything going to be 
all right. But then came the day of deliverance when King Cyrus runs back to the lion's den and he demands that the stone be rolled away and he calls out and says, are you in there, Daniel? Are you okay? Did your God deliver you? And do we think about John 20, which Mark read today, where the women go to the tomb and later the disciples go running, almost like Cyrus to the tomb. But unlike Cyrus, they do not go with anticipation. They go in despair. They go with confusion. They go with wonder. Oh, if they only had the faith of Cyrus to believe that God could deliver their great Daniel. But they were filled with doubt. Their heads were spinning. But in Easter Sunday, the stone was rolled away. And the stone was rolled away. And out from that lion's den came our greater Daniel. But unlike the Old Testament Daniel, who came out unharmed, And without any marks upon him, our Daniel, our greater Daniel, came forth with the grave with the marks of victory. He came with the tooth marks in his palms and on his feet and on his side. Because unlike the Old Testament Daniel, who avoided the lions, to whom the angel came and silenced the lions, our greater Daniel actually defeated the lions and he bore the marks to prove it. This story, while it is about Daniel and an enacted parable and prophecy about what God was going to do for his people, of course was a picture about the victory of the Lord Jesus Christ on our behalf. Now, finally, we thought about the context of the experience. We thought about the meaning of the experience. Now let's reflect for a second upon the results of the experience. When Cyrus runs to the grave and sees that Daniel is okay, he marvels. He marvels, and then, of course, he throws the bad guys in there. But then what does he do? He then issues a decree. And he says, from here on out, the name of Daniel's God is to be feared and to be revered. He is to be honored, and he is to be worshipped. And who's he saying this to? The Jews? No, he's saying it to the nations. He's saying it to the Persian Empire, to all who are within his empire. The name of Daniel's God is to be honored. He stands on his authority and he declares that this God will be honored. And so it was with our Daniel. When our Daniel came forth victorious from the grave, having defeated the lion, what did he do? He issued the Great Commission. And he called us who are in exile now, in some way now to be like Daniel and to go forth by his power and his dominion and his authority and to disciple the nations, much like Cyrus did, to disciple the nations and to declare the victory that he had wrought because the lions had now been defeated. And it is ultimately and only because Jesus, our Daniel, came forth victorious from that grave, having defeated the lions, that therefore, in light of that, we may follow the model of Daniel. The model, following the model, always must follow the victory and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is because he has come out victorious that we may now serve. It is because he has come out victorious that we may face him who seeks like a lion to destroy us, as we read in 1 Peter. It is now that we may resist him and he will flee. It is now that as the psalmist sings in Psalm 91, we may actually trample lions and cobras 
Not literally, we don't become snake handlers, but the scriptures rejoice in the fact that we can trample lions because our Daniel has defeated the lions. And in light of his victory, we may now trample lions and cobras. It is because of the victory of our Daniel that now we know with confidence, as we heard in our cult worship from Psalm 124, that the teeth of the beasts will not be allowed to consume us. Do not fear the beasts. Do not fear the lion seeking to, to devour you because Christ, your Lord, is victorious. It is because of him that we are able to serve because he is our Daniel. He has gone before us. He has entered into our exile. He has entered into our lion's den for us. He has entered into our judgment and borne it upon himself. And brothers and sisters, in that den, he has defanged the lion. He has removed the sting of death. He has removed the curse from the law. He has crushed the head of Satan. And it is in light of his victory and his victory alone that we can ever, as the hymn says, dare to be Daniel. It's not that Daniel's not a model, brothers and sisters, but it's first that he's a pointer to the victorious one to come. And then in light of that victory, he becomes a model for us. Sure, Jesus Christ is a model for us, but he's a model we only follow after we rejoice in the victory that he has wrought on our behalf. Model always follows after the victory. It's not the following the model that leads to the victory. It's the victory that now empowers us to follow the model. You and I live in exile and we must be obedient and we must be faithful and one must be confident and we must be uncompromising and we must endure the persecution that will come at us. But we can only ever do that by looking at the victory of Christ, our Daniel. And when we see the victory he has wrought, there is nothing that will cause us fear. There is nothing that can cause us to compromise when we see him walk victorious out of that grave. Brothers and sisters, I call you to rejoice in the victory, the resurrection victory, the atoning victory of the Lord Jesus Christ on your part. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, how we thank you for our greater Daniel. Father, the one who entered into the lion's den itself and who came forth victorious and who bears the marks to prove it. The one who defanged Satan and crushed his head. The one who took the sting from death itself and gave us victory over sin and even the grave. Oh, Father, how we thank you. And we pray now that you would strengthen us, that we might go forth and that we might follow the model that is laid before us. That, Father, you would help us to be faithful in the midst of our exile. That we might serve you in uncompromising and fearless obedience to the honor and the glory of your name. Amen.